just kind of a sneak preview, our final session tomorrow afternoon, almost the entire time, I'm going to put everything we've done together and I'm just going to preach a sermon from Psalm 23, but you'll recognize everything, but I'm just going to put it together. So I hope that'll be enjoyable to you. And after five sessions, I think you'll need that. So that'll be, that'll be uh, how we end up. But for now, I want to, uh, we're kind of in the middle section. And so let's begin by reading Psalm 23. Psalm 23, a psalm of David. Yahweh is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for You are with me. Your rod and Your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. Okay, so far we've geared up. We looked at dedication, organization, and meditation. Last session we formed our battle plan, preparation, contextualization, and meditation. And now we're getting to the the fun part, loading weapons. Loading weapons with observation, correlation, and meditation that we're, we're really gathering our ammo at this point. And so just like last time, I'm going to walk through the observations and the correlations in Psalm 23. Then I'm going to show you how to do it. I'll take apart what I did. And then we'll spend the richest part of our time, the last part of our evening, looking at the meditation to deepen our own souls in the Lord. So observations. We're entering the basic observation stage of Bible study. This is the hard work of collecting the raw material. This is the ammo from which we're armed to grasp the the text properly. Now, for our observations, you're not trying to immediately reach the primary meaning of the text. You're not trying to reach conclusions. You're not trying to find the hidden secret meanings that no one has ever found in 2,000 years, nor are you trying to confirm your own preconceived notions. You're just observing the text. You're letting the text speak for itself. This is the eternal word of God. That means you give enough time and prayer. If you, if you had endless time, you could make endless observations. So what I'm about to give you are the most basic, most obvious observations. And you'll note as we go through that you'll begin to have some overlap and some repetition. That's good. That begins to tell you some of the major themes. It confirms more and more what's most important. So I've just formulated a list. I'm just going to go through it quickly. And these are the the absolute basic observations. I did 24 observations of basic tasks or facts rather that we could easily see. And then we're going to ask questions and do some definitions. And again, we're we're just arming up here. We're just loading our weapons. Here are my observations. David is the speaker and writer. David speaks of God himself and of his enemies. David is making assertions of truth about God. David makes assertions of truth about how God protects him and helps him. The argument is being made that God does gracious things for David. David is in two places with God. This is where it gets gets really interesting. 
the wilderness, and a banquet hall or, or meal table of some sort. David will be in a third place with God, the house of Yahweh, and it'll be forever. If David will be in the house of Yahweh forever, logically, the fearful time of the valley of the shadow of death, the need for comfort in the time of trouble is temporary. So these are just observations from the text. David is in a spiritual place of needing comfort and courage. There are time elements. The verbs in verses 1 through 5 are present tense, suggesting repeated actions or a sense of being in the moment only. And then in verse 6, you have two future events happening. The goodness of God pursuing David throughout his life and eventually dwelling in the house of Yahweh. For David, the house of Yahweh is synonymous with the temple. That implies that there will be a temple or a dwelling place of God accessible to him for all time. And this is confirmed by the future temple of Ezekiel 40 through 48. It's confirmed by the eternal, all-encompassing dwelling of God in the final state where there's no temple necessary because all of creation is the temple. There's a twelfth observation. The overall feel of the psalm is patient, not urgent, of waiting in a calm place with God, a table in the presence of my enemies. There are beautiful pictures such as lying down, walking by quiet waters, soul restoration, sitting at a meal, and these all suggest contentment, safety, peace, joy, rising above your circumstances, rising above fear and spiritual danger. Since Psalm 23 is the middle of the Messianic trilogy, it's important to note that this is where I am now personally in the redemptive plan of God. I'm in Psalm 123. Yahweh is the first word, and it's nearly the last word. I mentioned this earlier, but God is mentioned 12 times. David, the reader, 17 times, and the enemy, two times. God is mentioned at the head of multiple actions instead of just a, a list of actions. For example, it's not just lying down in green pastures, it's He makes me lie down in green pastures. There are no questions to answer in Psalm 23, no rhetorical questions, they're all statements of truth to believe. There's a cause and effect relationship in verse 1 and verse 4. Verse 1, because Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. Verse 4, because you are with me, I will fear no evil. Cause and effect. Now I'm going fast because I'll tell you why in a minute. Verse 20, verse 5, or or number 20 rather, verse 5 implies the pursuit of enemies. Verse 6 says, goodness and loving kindness will pursue me. First enemies are are, are pursuing me now. Loving kindness is pursuing me. There's a contrast of evil in verse 4 and goodness in verse 6. The psalm is filled with action words. There's 12 verbs in the psalm. Uh, My cup overflows is not a verb in Hebrew, but we'll we'll just count them all in English. The verbs in verses 1 through 3 are all caused by God, and David is the recipient. He makes me, he leads me, he restores, he guides. And there are no commands to David. All the verbs are simply the result of God's kindness and His grace. Now, I like to ask questions. And so I I jotted down a few questions. Is David potentially remembering the days when he was a shepherd boy? What's the significance of the table in the presence of enemies? And what's the significance of David's head being anointed with oil? Those are things I wanted to know. And so you come back to answer those later. Now, I know this is still... this is. This is the loading the weapons, which is not nearly as exciting as firing the weapons, right? So we're just gathering ammo here. And part of that then is finding key definitions. And you can use some basic Bible study tools to help with this. 
the Bible dictionary, and so forth. Yahweh. I just did 10. Yahweh, the covenant name of God that reminds the reader of the rich image of the protection of God. That's what covenant keeping is. Green pastures. What does that indicate? It's provision and that there's plenty. Quiet waters. Literally, waters at rest. It's the type of water that you can see your reflection in. Paths. Literally is wagon tracks of righteousness. The context is not righteous behavior, but uprightness, worthiness. The shadow of death, what is that? It's not necessarily literal death, although that was a potential threat for David. It literally means a very deep shadow or a deep darkness or a gloom. We would say a really scary place. That's what the shadow of death is. The rod. The rod was a club to strike the wild animal who would harm the sheep. And the staff is the shepherd's crook to help guide the sheep. Two different implements. The anointed head. This is a picture of a host cleansing a weary traveler with water and with perfumed anointing oil in contrast to being in the dirty and scary valley of the shadow of death. The overflowing cup. This is a picture of abundance. A a wine cup that can't be emptied before it's filled again by the host. Abundance, overflowing, and loving kindness. This is God's covenant love and grace. He is Yahweh and He shows loving kindness. The two go together. Those are just a few key definitions. You could probably do quite a few others. So now you're, you've done your observation. That's all observation. Now we do some correlation. Correlation is what other sources in Scripture could help me understand this? How can it inform my understanding of Psalm 23 or the other way around too, how does Psalm 23 help inform my understanding of other portions of Scripture? I'll just take five key ideas in Psalm 23 and explore just a couple of important correlations, cross-references that are rich and worthy of use in a Bible study. The first idea, Yahweh is my shepherd. I think the obvious correlation, the obvious cross-reference is John 10, 11. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So what does that tell us? That tells us that part of the role of God as shepherd is to sacrifice himself for his sheep. And so Yahweh is my shepherd has implications not just for guidance in life, but it also has implications for salvation from sin. It becomes redemptive. Here's a second idea. He makes me lie down in green pastures. If you did a simple search, you would find... The other major place in the Bible that talks about green on the grass or pastures is Mark 6.39. Jesus is about to feed 5,000 and the crowd is on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. In Mark 6.39, he goes to the trouble to say he commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. And incidentally, what is Jesus about to do? He's about to prepare a table before them, isn't he? And Mark makes a clear connection to Psalm 23 because the crowd is also beside what? The still waters of the shoreline of Galilee. We'll do more on that tomorrow. Here's a third idea. He restores my soul. Psalm 19.7, the law of Yahweh is perfect, restoring the soul. This is the idea of returning to a place of peace, returning to a place of equilibrium recapturing your trust in the Lord. And and notice what we learned. The restoration of the soul is accomplished how? By the law of Yahweh. Those two go together beautifully. He restores my soul. How? With the word of God. 
Your rod comforts me. My fourth idea. You remember the rod is the club for beating back enemies. In Psalm 2, 8 and 9, God the Father is making a declaration to God the Son. He says, Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a what? Rod of iron. This shows the endless power and might of the shepherd. And when the rod is on your side, that's a good place to be. And then one more idea, just to correlate to other parts in Scripture. My cup overflows. A brief study of the metaphor of the cup in Scripture would reveal that it represents blessing and it can represent a trial to be endured. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, Mark 14, 36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this what? Cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. So what does that tell us? That your cup of blessing overflows in the Lord because Jesus drank all the way of the cup of suffering at the cross. So you see how those cross references just help enrich your study, help you understand the text. Now, in the moment, I'm going to go through exactly what I just did to make observations. I'm going to tell you what I did. You, you wonder, how did you come up with a list of 24? I'm going to tell you the questions to ask to come up with that list. But I, I, let me pull back and do kind of a bigger picture first. Something that's very, very basic, but I think is important for us. And I have a reason for doing this. And that's what some call the hermeneutical pyramid. And you can picture a pyramid... And the the bottom, the biggest part of the pyramid is observation. What we just did, observing the text. Let it speak for itself. You don't put your own ideas in the text. You're simply saying this says this. You're not saying this means this. You're just saying this says this. In the middle of the pyramid is interpretation. And that's that's not a big chunk. You have lots and lots of observation. Interpretation is simply the fact that you have lots of, interp- of observations that begin to overlap and they begin to interpret the text for you. And I'll show you how that works in our next session. And then right at the top of the pyramid, the hermeneutical pyramid, the last thing you do is application. You don't start there. Now, the reason I'm giving you that big picture thought is that you'll notice that when we, what we just did in the last session, we've already begun making applications. We're going out of order, aren't we? It seems to be contrary to the hermeneutical pyramid. So let me give you six thoughts about this and understand why in the Bible study process, technically speaking, application is at the top of the hermeneutical pyramid, but in your meditation on the text, you are going through that all the time. So let me give you some context for this. First thought, we said last time that the process of meditating on the text is not the same as discovering or landing on the primary interpretation of the text. You're just beginning to think it through. The primary interpretation of the text we will find is that God's protecting, shepherding over his people is the primary theme of Psalm 23. The second thought about application. The meditations are meant to be the result of your thoughts being provoked under the umbrella of the Bible knowledge that you're acquiring. You're you're not just having random thoughts. You don't have the random thought, well, let's see, Yahweh is my shepherd. Shepherds take care of sheep, so sheep are good. That's not a random thought. You're, you're, You're thinking logically. It's the third thought about application. It is reasonable, it's part of the process, and it's even right to correct some of your previous applications. 
That's okay. That's a good thing. That's the essence of spiritual growth in the Word. When I'm studying the text to, to preach, I don't ever wait till the very end to, to begin thinking about application. I begin thinking at the, at the beginning of my study, I make a big list of them, and by the time I get done studying, I go, well, that one doesn't fit, that doesn't fit, that's not right, that's practically heresy. No, that's not that one. But I've been thinking about it, but I test it based in the text. Correcting your previous understanding is embracing the process of growth. Here's a fourth thought on application. The applications are based on the meditation step of reasonable and logical implications. In other words, you're, you're not making illogical jumps. The meditation applications are not based on a single quick reading of the text. Remember, you've already read it 20, 30, 40, or 50 times. Unreasonable and illogical examples after one quick reading of Psalm 23 would be something like this. I need to spend more time out in the country because that's the best place to meet with God. Since God is my shepherd and I shall not want, I should believe Him for wealth and prosperity. Or, since God restores my soul, depression is always a result of sin. Those are too quick. Those are not logical. It's the fifth thought on meditation. The process of meditation and coming to applications as you study, listen carefully, doing this as you study, it keeps you from an academic approach to Scripture. That you're just acquiring a bunch of facts for their own sake. That somehow application is just kind of the last chore. Well, I guess i got to check this one off. Meditation helps the Word of God sift through your heart as you study, not just at the end. And one more thought on applications. They're personal, they're provoked by the Spirit of God working as you interact with the text. And yes, even with so-called mundane parts of Bible study like context. And this is important because the meditations which become applications now become your personalized program for personal sanctification. Something that I can't give you, something that no one else can give you. You've sifted that text through your own heart. And let me say a, a, a little side note here. In our current culture, the Church of Jesus Christ has, to a certain degree, sort of taken its cue from the world. And you know what that cue is? That cue is that the church, generally speaking, expects their shepherds to also be expert counselors. And how do you see a counselor? Well, you go once a week for an hour and you do this and that and this and that. Do you know what the Puritans did? They said, here are 15 texts of Scripture that apply to your problem. Go meditate on them for a month. Write yourself these Scriptures. Get your quill pen and your ink and write this Scripture 5,000 times. Pray this Scripture. Memorize this Scripture. Meditate on this. Think about 100 ways that you could apply this to your life. Now go, therefore, and be obedient. That was counseling. Why was that so effective? Because the person who needs the personalized counseling program is coming up with it himself based on the study of the text and based on knowing himself. It's not somebody telling you you need to go do this and that. It's pointing you to the word. Okay, that's application. Now I want to get to uh, what did we just do with the observations? I have to start with this. What observation is not. It's not a conclusion about the primary meaning of the text. If you think you've come to a conclusion about the text after 30 minutes of observation, you haven't even begun. So try to resist that. It's not a search for secret meanings in the text, which no one in church history has ever found. 
anybody ever heard of a uh, program that's in like every church in America practically called Celebrate Recovery? Celebrate Recovery is the world is the so-called Bible version of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it was written by Rick Warren, who came up with an interpretation of the Beatitudes that nobody in 500 years has ever come up with. And it's run rampant across the country because nominal Christians and false believers love originality. So your job in making observations is not to be original. It's to say such uh, gloriously lofty things as Yahweh is a shepherd. That's an observation. An observation is not a search to confirm what you already believe about the text. If you will be transparent and honest with yourself and with the Lord, you will find he begins to sift through all your false beliefs and begins to correct them. That's what Bible study does. So what is observation? It's just objectively cataloging the details that are readily apparent there in the text. It's looking at the text from every angle. I'm going to look at it from this angle, from this angle, from this angle, from this angle to scout it out. And it provides the foundation for interpretation which can be proven by reverse engineering your conclusions. Now let me explain that. I'll say it again and explain it. It provides the foundation for interpretation which can be proven by reverse engineering your conclusions. Hopefully, Lord willing, you hear me do this nearly every Sunday. That we come to a conclusion over here. Here's an interpretation of the text. I should be able to walk you backwards to, through the, here are the observations, here are the logical arguments that brought me to that point. If you simply say, I think Psalm 23 is a call to go out to the country every time I'm depressed. Okay, that's not a bad thing, right? I like going out to the country. But can you reverse engineer that with your observations? You can't. So your interpretations are very, you're confident in them because you can go back and show the building blocks that got you there. Okay, I flew through a bunch of observations. The sugar is now hitting you right now. And so let me tell you, I'm going to give you the exact order of what I just did. There is no magic to this. There's no secret pastor's book. There's just a list of things to do. Here's what I did. The 24 observations I did exactly in this order. First of all, ask the W questions. Who? Who is speaking? Who's being spoken of? Who's being spoken to? It, that's, that's easy. You just answer the question. It's like, a, it's like one of those quizzes in fifth grade you just, where it's open book. You just look at the book and answer the question. What? What's happening? What's the flow of the passage? What argument is being made? Where? What's the geography? That's part of the context, but there's also the metaphorical where. Where is the author metaphorically? He's in green pastures. He's by side quiet waters. When? When does it happen in relation to other events in the Bible? Are the verbs past, present, or future? Is there urgency or patience? And why? Why is this passage in this part of the book? Why might the Lord include this in Scripture? There's a list of pattern and relationship questions. How much space is devoted to various topics? I gave you the numbers of, of how many times God is mentioned, how many times the reader, how many times uh, the enemy. What's first? What's last? Are there important word and phrase orders? Are there repetition of words and ideas? What connecting words are there? And I know these are all mundane questions, but you put them all together and it paints a, a picture. 
Do phrases or words modify others? In other words, adjectives and adverbs. Are there questions and answers, statements of fact, or both? By the way, when we talk about adjectives and adverbs, there's no excuse anymore because we have this glorious tool called Google. You say, I don't know what an adjective is. You just, just Google it. I hate to say that. It's still good for something. Now, if you say, what's an adjective for hiding guns under my, hand, under my, uh, my uh, house, then probably Google won't be as helpful to you. But it's a useful tool. If you think, well, I don't know English grammar. Yes, you do. Because at least Google knows it. Are there cause-effect relationships? Those are, those are easy to see. Are there any comparisons or, or contrasts? Words like that like, like, or as. Actions. What are the verbs in the text? Are they commands or are they more passive? Something's happening to the reader. Are there wishes? Are there hopes? That's generally pretty apparent even in the English text. And then I note random questions as you study. I gave you three of them. For me personally, and I think this would be the case for you, the random questions that you come up with sometimes turn out to be the most fruitful part of your study. They turn out to be the most interesting part. And then important definitions. You use some resources to help with that. That's all I did. I literally, that exact list, turned into the 24 observations and the three questions that I read to you and the 10 definitions. What about correlation? The use of helpful cross-references. Okay, this is where we get into some dicey territory. This is where the ice gets a little bit thin sometimes because this is where um, novice Bible students get really, really excited to misinterpret Scripture because it sounds good. Or as we say in in the, the ministry field, it preaches really well. Let me give you some cautions in correlation. Assuming the same words in different verses are doing the same thing. Context is everything. So you can't assume that. Use common sense with cross-references so that they're helpful versus just muddying the waters. If you say, Yahweh is my shepherd, I think I'll find a cross-reference to that. And I'll find that uh, Joseph was a shepherd. Oh, Joseph is like Yahweh. No, that's not useful. That's not helpful. And then you need to briefly understand the context of each cross-reference to conform to authorial intent. In other words, don't get excited and find 15 cross-references for one concept unless you're willing to dig out the context of every one of those cross-references to keep you from misusing it. How do you know a correlation or a cross-reference is useful? Some characteristics. It, it clarifies or adds to the main idea. It helps me. It's, it's useful to me. It maybe reiterates the same idea so that gives more weight to my observation. It's not just in one place. It keeps me from forming faulty conclusions from just one text. It adds color. It adds a different angle or concept that's related. And then just really practically here, some sources for correlation. Concordances. I've said this before. Theological uh, materials are cheap online. Um, Buy them used because a thousand people before you got excited about this but couldn't follow through and now they're selling their concordance online. So you take advantage of their laziness and you become a, 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 have a good library. Some of your Bibles have cross-references in the margins and because they're short on space, they generally are good ones. Commentaries are a good source. You have to hunt them down in the paragraphs though and then your own sermon notes from the past. Um, any sermon that I preach, generally speaking, you're going to get anywhere between 20 and 100 cross-references. So if you're taking notes and you happen to study a passage I've already preached on, go find your notes and use those cross-references. 
Okay, that's it. That's observation and correlation. And now we get to the best part. This is where we, we've prepared the food. It's right here before us. And now we take our knife and fork and we, we eat. Remember the steps of useful time and meditation. I won't go through the five steps now, but we're going to go through them slowly here. I chose three truths to meditate on from observations. Specific truth number one, David is in two places with God, a wilderness and a banquet hall or a meal table. So here are the reasonable and logical implications that I I prayed through and thought through. The wilderness is a place, is pictured as a place of peace where David is alone with Yahweh, his shepherd. There's an irony in being in a wilderness that's also perfectly peaceful. And remember in the Bible, wilderness is not a nice place. Wilderness is a dangerous place. In the wilderness, the shepherd provides, I shall not want. He gives rest, makes me lie down. He gives calm, quiet waters. He gives spiritual refreshment, restores my soul. He keeps me walking the correct path. And all the Lord's help in the wilderness is for what reason? For his name's sake. Into verse 3. My focus is on the glory of God and his loving care of me. It points honor and credit to himself. In the same way as the wilderness, when David's at the meal table with enemies all around, the shepherd is present as the host now. And it, it paints an ironic picture of tranquility at the center of danger and suffering. And at the meal table, again, I have total provision, the prepared table, total cleansing, anointed my head with oil, and total blessing, my cup overflows. Both the wilderness and the meal table include the simultaneous Elements of abundant care and blessing in the midst of danger. I can ask for and expect tremendous blessings and comfort in the very worst situations in my life. I receive confidence in that from my observation. And while the major focus is on the two locations of the wilderness and the meal table, the third location is the highlight. It's the, it's the final hope. I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. That's the high point of the song. David moves from the immediate to the eternal that the shepherd will shepherd David all the way into the next life. What questions could I ask myself from that? The clear paradox in Psalm 23 is that David is experiencing total peace and comfort while in the wilderness and in the valley of the shadow of death. How am I pursuing this peace instead of just always praying for my circumstances to change? What are the provisions of the shepherd for me? Have I truly thanked the shepherd for every single way he provides for me in the wilderness and in the valley? Have I truly pursued in prayer the glory of the shepherd for his name's sake? Have I prayed through a trial saying, Lord, my number one wish is for you to be honored and glorified through this? In all honesty, how do I tend to panic or not exhibit trust in the wilderness and valley? What are the green pastures and the quiet waters that God graciously gives to me every day? What am I doing to see my soul refreshed, restored with the Word of God? Am I being willingly led on the paths of righteousness or does my wilderness and valley make me want to rebel and stray from faithfulness and obedience? In other words, do I use my trial as an excuse to sin? Do I truly take time to learn and seek to know the forever that's in my future? Have I read and contemplated Revelation 21 and 22 recently? Based on all that, then you write yourself your own curriculum of personal application. I will list at the end of each day for a week 
all the green pastures and quiet waters that God provides me. I will specifically pray to not fear and call upon the Lord for the strength to be courageous. I will thank the Lord specifically for my anointed head that I'm clean before Him through the forgiveness of sin. I will pray through Revelation 21 and 22 in a spirit of anticipation and comfort. I will sing or read hymns based on Psalm 23 every day for a week. I will confess to the Lord sins of not trusting Him, of panicking, of not walking in the spirit of peace and joy and of thinking as though God will fail me. You do all those things for a week or two, what's that going to do to your soul? And then you, you write your prayer, and I believe in writing prayers. I can give you 150 evidences that you should write your prayers. Psalm 1, Psalm 2, Psalm 3. My shepherd and God, I confess to you that I fear when I need not do so. Here are the ways that I fear when I should not. You have graciously provided green pastures and quiet waters for me. These include, I affirm that the valley, the wilderness and the valley are safe places for me because you are with me. I affirm your all-present nature that wherever I am, you are also. Teach me to see the blessings of the green pastures and the quiet waters and to revel in the peace you offer even when turmoil surrounds me. There's another specific truth. The key definitions of rod and staff. The rod being a club to strike the wild animal who would harm the sheep and the staff being the shepherd's crook to keep the sheep on the right path. By the way, I picked ones that, that somebody might be able to say, oh, you can't get anything out of that. Reasonable and logical implications. The comfort of the shepherd's rod is found in his all-powerful nature and ability to protect me. The comfort of the shepherd's staff is found in his commitment to lead and guide me all the way to the house of Yahweh. It may be that suffering, the wilderness, the valley, the presence of my enemies is the means by which the shepherd will use his staff to guide me. It may be that the shepherd's rod is for me as well to discipline and train me. For this I ought to be thankful because I am his child. Hebrews 12 says this. The shepherd's love for me must be so very great that he would protect me with the weapon of the rod. The shepherd's love for me must be so very great that he would invest in shaping me and leading me with the staff. The rod is not only the the shepherd's tool, but the king's scepter. The king of all the kings looks to my welfare personally. The strength and guidance of the shepherd are meant to continually comfort me. The shepherd is fully equipped to lead me through the valley of the shadow of death. In the shepherd, I have all things pertaining to life and godliness, 2 Peter 1.3. In the shepherd, I have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, Ephesians 1.3. The shepherd also acts as a loving father, great strength in the rod of power, great instruction and wisdom in the staff of leading and guidance. And this was my favorite The rod and staff indicate that God is not aloof. He's not distant. He's intimately involved in my life with his power of protection, his discipline, his guidance, his wisdom. He's near. He's close. He's proximate. What does this make me ask myself? How can I submit to the rod of discipline myself? What pride am I dealing with that makes me resistant to what the Lord would teach me through the rod of suffering? What scriptures have I sought for help and wisdom in the valley of the shadow of death I may be in? Have I resented the Lord for the valley? In what ways does the Lord show His power and strength on my behalf? 
What are the root heart issues that may prevent me from fully trusting the Lord's power and guidance? Am I self-reliant? Do I have an unintentional low view of God? Do I have a sentimental view of God that says that God's main purpose is to give me good feelings? So based on all of that, what am I going to do? What's the assignment I'll write for myself? I will thank the Lord for the specific ways He's been protective of me. I will thank the Lord for the specific ways He's provided guidance and steering in the paths of righteousness. I will identify and pray for help for any heart issues that prevent me from fully trusting the Lord. I will identify the ways the Lord brings loving discipline into my life and confess if I've sinned by not receiving it as God's love. I'll review the attributes of God to be reminded of how powerful His protective hand is. I'll determine that whatever current wilderness or valley I'm in, I'll view it as an opportunity to believe that my shepherd is with me. And then I will pray based on that one meditation, my strong and guiding shepherd, you have protected me throughout my life to get me safely to the point of my salvation in Christ. You have preserved me up to this moment. I have lived every day of my life because of the strength of the shepherd's rod. And your guiding staff guided me most importantly to the knowledge of the gospel and even now your tender and wise touch of the staff points me in the paths of righteousness. Improve my fearlessness. Increase my awe at your might which works on my behalf and my appreciation for your providential guiding hand which will lead me to your house forever. I'm going to spend a lot of time on this in our last message so I'll let you read on your own specific truth number three and all of the reasonable logical implications. Because I want to make sure we have time to, to do this. During our first session yesterday evening, I encouraged you to commit to at least one Bible study project. Just a short section. Maybe a week or a month on that one passage. But I hope you're beginning to see a couple of things. That first of all, you can use these basic tools. They are within your grasp to catalog the treasures of your particular passage and that you could easily take a month on one passage and that alone could change your life. Do you realize you could pick three verses and if you will catalog and you will meditate at this level, those three will change your life. All we've done so far in the last two sessions is pick three truths from each step, six total, and in each of those we created enough application for at least a week on each one to dig into your soul. So do you see that spending six weeks studying one passage, meditating on it, doing the assignments you make for yourself, you see that you would be hard-pressed to get it done in six weeks? So to say, I'm going to study these four verses, these five verses for three months is very, very doable, very, very easy to do. And only heaven knows how tremendously that will change and elevate your view of God and your personal sanctification. Well, tomorrow morning, our first session, we're going to pull it all together. How do you interpret the text? How do you turn your observations into interpretation? How do you get some additional information? And we'll meditate on that. And then we'll, uh, in our final session tomorrow afternoon, we're going to put it all together. And you're just going to hear, this is the fun part of studying for me, just all the best bits. That's the fun part. Somebody says, well, how do you, how do you make a lesson that's interesting? I just take all the stuff that I like the best and it impacts my heart the most and impacts your heart the most 
And I probably won't read you 50 definitions tomorrow afternoon, but I'll tell you the three that will change your life. So that's the joy that we'll have. So I'm going to close in prayer, and then I'm sure Brandon has some, some final things. But I want to encourage you to get a good night's rest and be praying about your commitment to this because as you know, a lot of your wives are already committing to it. So it's time for you to run faster and catch up to them. Let's pray for a moment. Our Father, we, we ask you with great boldness. I know this is asking a lot, but we ask you with great boldness that you would continue the transformation process of our particular local church, Lord, that we would be a church that is known in heaven as being filled with men and women who open their Bibles and weep across its pages as we meditate on the truths therein. Let that be our legacy as we look forward to that glorious day when we too will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.